0: All right, I'm excited to be back today teaching the book of Luke. Um, today we're going to read Luke chapter four, verse 20, uh, verses twenty-two through thirty. Um, you may notice, uh, oh, if you want to follow along in the U version thing, that's on the website. There, you can uh, we'll have all the, the the links and the text and everything up there. Um, you may notice I'm in a new spot now. Um, I have. Had to move my office and our whole house around because we've got these couple of foster kiddos, and uh, they took over my office. So, uh, you guys get to see my let's see what's behind me my my shelf of Bibles uh, that cost way too much money couple of guitars some stuff like that. Anyway, so it's a little busier in the background, but I don't feel like moving everything every time I have to preach, so you guys get to look at all this stuff. Um, anyway, I'm excited to be back in the book of Luke. Um, I want to thank Toby again for jumping in last week and filling in for me and really helping out. Um, and let me just open us up now uh, with a word of prayer, um, and then we'll dive into this text. So, Lord, we are uh, grateful for your word. We're grateful for your church. Um, you know, Lord, we long to be together, um, but we know that even though we are separated by distance, and we're watching this on, um, you know, our TVs or our computers or whatever at home, uh, we know that we are still connected as your family, as your adopted kids, um, through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And so, today, Lord, I know. Um, we're we're far away from each other, but I just pray that you would help us to study this text together and uh, as a family, and to hear from you uh, as our Father. So we just we pray all this in your name, Amen. So we've talked a lot in sermons and stuff that I've taught about how the way the Bible presents the world is that there's two systems in the world, right? Or there's there there's the system of Babylon is kind of the evil. Uh, world system that shows up in a lot of different ways, right? Babylon has showed up, you know, as Babylon, as Egypt, uh, as Rome, as Greece, as uh, a lot of the medieval stuff, a lot of times even America, right? It's just the, this way that the world works. Um, this oppressive system of, of sinful oppression. That's, that's Babylon, right? And what we read last time was, and we talked about last time, was the kingdom of Jesus is sort of the opposite of the kingdom of Babylon. And so, uh, the kingdom of Jesus is about basically everything that the kingdom of Babylon is not about. And so, um, Last time, not last week, but last time we studied the book of Luke together, um, Jesus showed up to his his home church, and I want to show you what he said. So, we're going to recap, because really, originally in my notes, I had both of these two texts um, as one sermon, and as I was writing it and I was going through, I thought, man, I really want to break this into two. So, uh, that's what I did. So, I want to read to you the beginning, just so you remember kind of where we came from. So, look at verse uh, 16 of chapter 4. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So, Jesus shows up in his hometown in Nazareth and he gets up and he reads this, this wonderful passage from the book of Isaiah about what the kingdom of the Messiah will look like. When, when the promised king finally shows up, what is that gonna look like? What is that kingdom gonna look like? And he reads all of this stuff, right, about the upside down kingdom of God. Then he sits down, which was like we talked about, was their version of standing behind the pulpit, right? The teachers always sat down. So he sits down, and this is his sermon. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he gets, he gets up, and he basically, in front of his hometown, he claims to be the Messiah. The kingdom of God has come. That was his message. It's come through me. That's what he's saying. Well, not me, but Jesus, right? It's come through the Messiah, who's here now in Nazareth. Oops here in Nazareth. So let's see how everybody reacted. Look at verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? So their initial reaction was, uh, they were really excited that the Messiah was coming from their little nothing town of Nazareth. It says that they spoke well and they marveled. Now, at first, right, that sounds like a really good thing. Oh, they, they're they really loving Jesus. They're... Um, you know they they love the sermon they love what everything that he's about. Jesus seems to be getting more and more popular. But later in Luke, uh, it's Luke six something. Uh, I wrote it down. Where's it? Oh yeah, six twenty six. Uh, Jesus will wa- actually warn his disciples to watch out when sp- when people are speaking well of you because um, that he says that's what they did with the false prophets and. Uh, Back in the day. And we all know how that turned out for the false prophets. The crowds are fickle and we'll see this in the ministry of Jesus. They're up and down. They love him. They hate him. They love him. They hate him. But early on here in his ministry, Jesus is gaining a lot of popularity. And he's here in his hometown, right, in his home synagogue, what we would say his home home church, and the people are marveling at his sermon. This initial response is overwhelmingly positive, but what was it that was so positive? It says that they loved his gracious words. He was claiming that the kingdom of God had come. He was claiming to be that promised Messiah, the son of David, right, the descendant of David that God had promised. And so this is what they say. They marveled at it, but then at the end it says, isn't this Joseph's? son. Now, this is a major theme throughout the book of Luke and in Acts, right? Is people are asking, who is this Jesus? People keep asking that question, trying to figure him out. Here, he claims to be the Messiah and everybody asks, who is this? Isn't that Joseph and Mary's son? Now, how do we take this? Well, really, there's kind of two options here. The first is to take it in a negative sense. This is Joseph's son. He can't be the Messiah, right? He's just a carpenter uh, or, you know, like what we would say, he's just a contractor or something like that, right? He's a builder. He's a common, uh, you know, he's just one of us, right? He's one of the regular folks. The second way to take it, though, is in a positive sense. Isn't this Joseph's son? How amazing is it that? Look at all that he is doing. I think the second option actually fits better with this idea that they, because of the idea that they were marveling at his words. They're proud. The Messiah is going to come from our clan. Remember, um, uh, we think very individualistic in the Western world, but back then they thought in terms of families and clans and big, you know, extended families. And so for Jesus to be the Messiah and to come from their clan meant that that would bring great honor to them. And so, um, I bet that that's what they were thinking. Some of these people had taken care of Jesus as a, as a kid, right? They had helped him with his homework. I bet the person who taught Jesus how to read was sitting in this room. I don't know. But, you know, uh, they helped him grow up. And now here he is, this famous rabbi that everybody is talking about. He's the talk of Israel, and he is um, claiming to be the Messiah. So how is it that, how does Jesus take the praise? Look at verse 23. And he said to them, Doubtless, you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So Jesus now says, I bet you guys are going to quote this this proverb to me. Now, I know the book of Luke and the book of Acts was written by Luke, who was a physician. He was a doctor. But medicine in these days was, wasn't that great. Being a doctor was not a prestigious profession like it is now. Um, I like to use this example. Think about, have you ever seen the, um, or read anything about how George Washington died? It was actually pretty awful and basically he got sick and, uh, if they had just done one little procedure, he would have survived, but instead they, they were bleeding him with leeches and all this stuff. Okay. That is, was horrible medicine at the time, right? I mean, even for the time, I guess it was horrible medicine. That this happened, what Jesus, what's going on here, was 1,800 years before that happened. So you can imagine how far back medicine was, even from the time when they were bleeding George Washington with leeches. And so here's the idea, especially since so many doctors in the Roman world were slaves. Um, what peop, the the proverb goes like this, basically: before you make me try this medicine, I want to see you try it and see what happens first. So that's the prod the proverb. Jesus sort of. Expands that a little bit. What he's saying is, um, you know, do it in your hometown first, what you've been doing everywhere else. That's kind of what he's saying. You've been healing everywhere else. It's time for you to do that here. And so, verse 24, he continues, or, you know, continues, and he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. So when you see in the gospels, that word truly, that's actually the the Greek word, amen. And it means like, this is true. So the gospels constantly portray Jesus as saying that before his own words, right? This is the very truth of God is kind of what he's saying. And so his answer, he says, amen. uh, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. That's his answer. This is kind of a famous saying of Jesus. I even actually, just the week that I was writing this sermon, I read somebody quote this proverb or you know this saying of Jesus uh, on Reddit and then nobody knew what he was talking about so some every, somebody he had to explain it to everybody else but what is it that Jesus means well it's not really complicated basically he's saying it's people it's hard for people to accept a leader from their own right because they're too familiar with that person i think last time i talked about um how much love and support I received from my home church where I was the pastor for a few years. And I think that's really uh, unusual. That's not normally how it goes. Um, Jesus, he found the opposite to be true. And then, so he's saying, you guys aren't really going to believe me uh, because I'm from your hometown. Maybe you were proud for that to have happened, but really, I don't think you're going to believe that I'm the Messiah. And then what Jesus does is he makes this... Absolutely genius transition. Right? He goes, Well, speaking of unwelcome prophets, let me tell you a couple of stories. And he tells them stories about the two prophets, Elijah and Elisha. So uh, let's read what he says in verse 25. Uh, But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows. In Israel, in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Okay, so, Jesus now quotes... A story that all of these folks probably would have known to make his point that these prophets are rejected in their hometowns. And look at, I want to read to you actually these two. He talks first about Elijah here, then he's going to talk about Elisha next. Um, I want to read this story to you, okay? So I'm going to read this from a different translation. This is the CSB translation, the Christian Standard Bible. Uh, So this is 1 Kings chapter 17. I'm going to read verses 1 uh, through 16 here. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Gilead, uh, from the Gilead settlers said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, in whose presence I stand, there will be no dew or rain during these years except by my command. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Leave here, turn eastward and hide at the Wadi, uh, Cherith, where it enters Jerusalem. You are also to drink from the wadi. I've commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he proceeded to do what the Lord commanded. And Elijah lived at the wadi Cherith, where it comes into the Jordan. Uh, The ravens kept bringing him bread and meat in the morning and in the evening, and he would drink from the wadi. After a while, the wadi dried up because there had been no rain in the land. So the story starts out like this, right? Like Elijah, Goes to King the wicked King Ahab. He says, "There's not going to be any rain anymore. Uh, I'm the prophet of God, and I've spoken, or whatever." And then that's the end of it. And he walks away. So then he goes and he hides out at this little pond, uh, and the ravens are bringing him food. But eventually it kind of dries up. So now he has to figure out a way to take care of himself. So it continues. Verse eight. Then the word of the Lord came to him: "Get up, go to Zarephath that belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Look, I've commanded a woman who is a widow to provide for you there." So Elijah. Uh, Got up and went to Zarephath. And when he arrived at the city gate, there was a widow gathering wood. Elijah called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a cup and let me drink. She went to get it, and uh, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I don't have anything baked, only a handful of flour in the jar and a bit of oil in a jug. Just now I am gathering a couple of sticks in order to go prepare it for myself and for my son so that we may eat it and die. Then Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go and do as you have said. But first make me a small loaf from it and bring it out to me. Afterwards you may make some for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord God of Israel says. The flour jar will not become empty and the oil jug will not run dry until the, the day the Lord sends rain on the surface of the land. So she proceeded to do according to the word of Elijah. Then the woman, Elijah, and her household ate for many days. The flour jar did not become empty and the oil jug did not run dry. According to the word of the Lord, he had spoken through Elijah. Elijah. So that's the story. So after he the pond dries up, he heads over. Um, he heads over to Zarephath, and he, uh, it's in the land of Sidon. And he meets this widow, and she says, "Look." He asks her for some food, and she says, "Look, I don't have any food. All I have is just enough to make like one little kind of cake, sort of thing—bread, cake, whatever—and uh, it'll be our last meal for me and my son. And then we were planning on just rolling over and dying because this famine in this land is so bad now, and so because there's been no rain." And so Elijah says, well, this is what the Lord God says. Go make me some food and then make yourself some food. And as long as we keep doing this, that stuff is not going to run out. It's sort of like an ancient version of the feeding of the 5,000 that we'll read about later uh, in Luke. And so this is what happens, right? He's Because he's on the run from uh, King Ahab and from Ahab's wife, the wicked Queen Jezebel, um, because he's on the run, Nobody in his own land will will take care of him. And so the story, the hero of the story, is this poor Gentile widow right? The bottom of society. And so, Zarephath, the city that he ends up going to, was a city that belonged, like I said, to the kingdom of Sidon. The hero of this story is not a Jewish person. And so, do you see what Jesus is doing here by telling this story in this synagogue after his sermon? He says, I am the Messiah. The kingdom of God has come, and you Jewish folks are going to reject me? Well, fine. Uh, Here's a story about a Gentile who acts in faith and serves Yahweh. And so when you guys reject me, the kingdom of God is going to be expanded and is going to be full of people like this widow. And then just like one of those infomercials, right? Jesus sort of says, but wait, there's more, right? He's not done. This isn't his only example of this. He says in verse 27, he tells another story. He references another story. He says, and there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, uh, the Syrian, so, now Jesus kicks it up a notch, right? So, um, let me explain to you real quick the uh, Elijah-Elisha relationship. So, Elijah was the older prophet, and Elisha was his protege. And eventually, sort of the mantle of this, this prophetic office was passed from Elijah to Elisha. So, when you open up the next part of the book of Kings, right, the hero now in this story is the prophet Elijah. Elisha. So, I want to read to you now from 2 Kings. So, we're jumping forward a little bit in the story. This is from 2 Kings uh, chapter 5 verses 1 through 14. So, this is the story of Nahum and the Syrian that Jesus is referencing. I'm going to read the whole thing because he just assumed the people in his his synagogue would have known this story. But uh, I'm actually going to read it to you because I I bet a lot of you haven't thought about this story in quite a while. So, here we go. 1 through 5. uh, How far am I going? Yeah, 1 through 14. So Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a man important to his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was a valiant warrior, but he had a skin disease. He had le- Some translations call it leprosy, or some sort of a skin disease. Uh, Aram had gone on raids and brought back from the land of Israel a young girl who served Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, if only my master were with a prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his skin disease. So Naaman went and he told his master what the girl from the land had said. Therefore, the king of Aram said, go and I will send a letter with you to the king of Israel. So he went and took with him 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. Uh, Clothing was pretty expensive back then. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, and it read, When this letter comes to you, note that I have sent my servant Naaman uh, for you to cure him of this skin disease. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes, which was a way of like crying out and being sad, uh, you know, mourning. He tore his clothes, and he asked, Am I God killing and giving life that this man expects me to cure a man of his skin disease? Recognize that he is only picking a fight with me. When Elisha... The man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes. He sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Have him come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. Then Elisha sent him a messenger who told him, go wash seven times in the Jordan and your skin will be restored and you will be clean. But Naaman got very angry. And left, saying, "'I was telling myself, "'he will surely come out and stand "'and call upon the name of the Lord his God "'and wave his hand over the place "'and cure the skin disease.' Aren't Abna and uh, pho, how you say that Fapar, the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be clean? And so he turned and he left in a rage. But his servants approached him and said, "My father, if the prophet had told you to do uh, to do some great thing, would you have not done it? How much more should you do when he only tells you wash and be clean?" So Naaman went down, dipped himself in the Jordan seven times according to the command of the man of God. Then his skin was restored; he became like the skin of a small Small boy uh, and he was clean so that's the story of uh, of Naaman uh, the 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 Syrian the Syrian general and so again look at, the story continues. I didn't read the whole end, but basically he says, Hey, can I take a bunch of, he, he becomes a follower of Yahweh. Can I take a bunch of ground from Israel so I can go build an altar uh, back in my hometown, right? Uh, so that as I follow Yahweh. Again, who's the center of this story that Jesus is referencing here? Let me put this over here. Who's the center of this story that Jesus is referencing, right? This time it's not, it's not a widow from a nearby town. This time it's the general of an army of the nation that has been oppressing the people of God for years and years and years. This guy was not a good dude. He was part of he was an enemy. And so he he comes, he shows up, and the prophet Elijah cures him anyway. And he becomes a follower of Yahweh. Do you see what Jesus is here? Why is he referencing this story as well? He's building on the widow story. In that story, there was nobody to take care of Elijah uh, in Israel. And so he had to go to the land of Sidon and he found, this, um, he found the widow and uh, she took care of him. But here, there's actually a lot of people in Israel with this leprosy or with this skin disease. But Elisha didn't heal any of them. He healed this guy, the general, the enemy. The outsider. This is the person who receives God's healing grace. And so how do you think these people in the synagogue at Nazareth took these words of Jesus? Look at verse 28. Not well. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Um why? Why were they so upset? What was Jesus' point? His point was this now that the kingdom of God is here, this is going to be the pattern outsiders are coming in the kingdom of god is full of rejected prophets sidonian widows and enemy generals that's great news if you're an outsider but for the good law abiding or as they thought law you know of moses abiding jewish folks the insiders this really rubbed them the wrong way this keeps what's going on here oh i gotta tighten this hold on give me a sec Maybe I'll edit this out. Maybe I'll just leave it so you guys know I'm dumb. Let's see. All right, there we go. Um, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. So for the, for the insiders, this is, not, this is not good news to them. This, this really, you know, like I said, it rubs them the wrong way. It's hard to tell somebody whose entire identity is wrapped up in you are the chosen and everybody else sucks that actually we're going to let all of those people in. Right, That's what's going to happen. The outsiders are coming in. And so with this news, the people in the in uh, Jesus' hometown synagogue are furious. Now, this is all very important to understanding this text. Look at the order of the events here. They hear about the works of their hometown boy, and they are very excited. And so he shows up to teach, and he sits down and he reads a passage from Isaiah. And then the passage is all about the messianic kingdom. And he says, guys, this is me. The kingdom of God is here. And at first they love it. They marvel at his gracious words. And he, uh, so they get excited, right? And they say, well, now do some miracles here and prove it like you did in other places, right? That's what they want. They want him to prove it. And so Jesus says, you know, these prof- the prophet's not accepted in his hometown. So he gives them this pattern and he uses these two stories. Outsiders are coming in. The kingdom of God, he tells them, is not what you expect it to look like. And now they're filled with wrath. Filled with wrath. Those are very strong words. And what do they do next? They attempt murder. Verse 29, they rose up, they drove him out of town. They brought him to the, the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. That's harsh, right? So the way stoning worked... In the in the Jewish world, um, was right stoning was the penalty for a bunch of things. Blasphemy was the big one. Um, <clears throat> let me take a sip of water. Blasphemy, idolatry, a few other things. And although, um, <clears throat> although they didn't actually have the authority to stone somebody, only the Roman government had the authority to put people to death. It actually happened quite a bit, right? It still happened sometimes. We see this is what happened with Stephen. Um, In Acts chapter, was that seven or eight, somewhere right there? I think seven. Um, The practice was to take somebody to a cliff, if you could find one, or a hill, or a pit, right? A big pit. You'd throw them down. You'd hope the fall would kill them. But if that didn't, you would throw rocks at them uh, until they were dead. It was absolutely brutal. They were so upset with Jesus for saying that outsiders are coming in that they wanted to kill the hometown hero. They flipped like that. They flipped that fast. And when I've heard this taught like this, they were so upset that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. But that's not what happened, right? When we read the text, that's not what's going on here. It wasn't that he claimed to be the Messiah. They were excited about that part. It was that in his eyes, in their eyes, he committed blasphemy by saying that Gentiles get to be a part of the kingdom of God. No way. No dice. And so they try to kill him. They try to stone him. Uh, but spoilers, I don't know if you know the end of the story. They don't. Uh, Jesus survives this uh, murder attempt. Verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went away. So Jesus goes all, uh, let's see, you know, Raheem Moser or uh, Barry Sanders, right? He goes all Barry Sanders, cuts through the crowd, ducks out. It doesn't say how this happened. Since the whole crowd was after him, some kind of a miracle is implied here. Uh, but Jesus lives now to see another day. Now, as we read this, it's very easy for us looking back from our modern world uh, to, to look back at these first century Jewish folks with just absolute utter contempt. I mean, and on one hand, rightly so. But that's not our main point today, right? I don't want this to be a sermon uh, where we look back at these people, pat ourselves on the back and go, well, at least I'm better than them. Amen. Let's go home. Uh, let's not assume that we're better. You see, this attitude that we see here on a huge scale, right, willing to kill Jesus over this, right? let's murder the guy who takes in outsiders, this happens on so many levels in our world every day, all the time. And let's be honest, whether you want to admit it or not, you've done this. We all have. It's called, what I'm talking about is this idea called ethnocentrism. Ethnocentrism, let me read you the definition from the Oxford Dictionary. Uh, Evaluating other cultures according to the preconceptions originating in one's own culture. So this is the idea, basically. It's thinking that your culture is the default, is neutral, and everybody else is weird. And so, in general, we're talking about race and ethnic makeup, right, ethnicity. Um, But I think this attitude overflows into a lot of other areas, Uh, we, we love, I hate to say this, but this is true. We love to stick to our own kind, don't we? People generally spend more time with people that look like them, race and ethnicity, economic status, hobbies, all that sort of stuff. We like to spend time with people that look like us. That's humanity. We see that everywhere. But why, why are we like this? Now, the root of, uh, ethnocentrism, according to some, according to like world, the world, right? Um, is some folks say that this is a learned behavior. I was reading all about this and it was actually really interesting. I don't have time to get into everything that I read. Uh, you can Google this sort of stuff. But basically the idea is that we're not born with this mindset. We're born sort of with a blank slate. And this is something that we pick up from the people around us. So let's take an example and let's just talk about me and my upbringing, uh, you know, as an example. Let me just tell you a few things about my past, uh, a few events or, you know, different way, the way that I was raised. Um, I dated a Chinese girl in high school and, uh, um, somebody from my family, uh, I won't say who, uh, not alive anymore, but somebody from my family found out, um, and gave me, pulled me aside and gave me the, we stick to our own speech, right? We don't date people from other races speech that, that, that happened to me. I mean, this was not, you know, the 1800s. This was 2000 and I don't know what would that have been 2000, 2001, somewhere near, um, So that's one thing that happened to me. Another, in our school curriculum growing up, right, I learned a lot about American heroes without always learning the whole truth, right? So I learned Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. I didn't learn anything about, oh, I'm blanking on her name, Sally Hemings, I think was her name, um, you know, the slave woman, um. Uh, that he was shacked up with. We learn about George Washington and how I cannot tell a lie. And we learn about crossing the Delaware River and all the great stuff that George Washington did, how he was humble enough to walk away from the presidency when he could have basically become a king. Um, But we even heard, you know, I even learned as a kid that George Washington had wooden teeth, but that's not true, right? George Washington, there's a few things we learned about him that weren't true. The wooden teeth was that what actually happened was um, he he had uh, dentures made from slave teeth. Um, we learned that, I learned in school that, he, well, in his he wasn't that bad because in his will, he freed his own slaves. But again, that's not exactly true. He did say that, but not until after his wife died. And I think really only because of that was it one or two slaves ended up going free. Um, so we learned a lot about people like Woodrow Wilson and the League of Nations, but we never learned that he showed... The birth of a nation, right? That KK, I think that's what it's called. The KKK movie, Uh he showed that at the White House. It was one of the first movies to be screened. I think it was the first movie to be screened at the White House. And so in all of my upbringing, a lot of our nation's heroes were, pun intended, right? Kind of whitewashed. <laughs> um They were cleaned up and I didn't learn the tough stuff about them. Um so that's another thing, right? So we have my conversation about my, my Chinese girlfriend in high school. We have the, the the curriculum from what I was taught. Um there's other things, right? We have I've I had rough experiences. I went to a school where uh you know, I was a white kid, but there were a lot of black kids at my school, and I used to get made fun of a lot growing up for not knowing anything about rap music. I, I didn't know about rap songs. I was the first grader listening to Amy Grant while all my friends were listening to what was it, you know, Chris Cross? You know, those guys who wear their their clothes backwards, right? And so maybe that had an impact on me. Then go to my high school years. Conflict, right? Nine Eleven happens. What did I see all throughout my high school? Well, not all throughout. I was. So so I think I was a junior uh, when 9/11 happened, but what did I see? Arab Muslims knocking down the tower. Then we go to war with two Arab countries. Um and around that time, all of the TV villains uh on, you know, on all the movies and TV shows, they changed from Russians uh to Arab Muslims, right? And maybe that had an impact on me. And so now as an adult, whenever I have sort of this ethnocentric mindset, when I judge other cultures and assume that my white American Western culture is superior, secular social scientists would say all of those things over time took the neutral slate of John's mind and slowly affected it in this direction. Now, is that true? Is that why I'm like this? Well, maybe, is that why people do that? It's because they were affected like this? Well, maybe. I don't know. Probably at least a little bit. But is that the whole truth? It's not. I don't think it is. The Bible has a much more nuanced and and deep view of what's wrong with us. And so, the root of ethnocentric behavior and attitudes, according to Scripture. Let's go back to the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and think back to Eden. What was the original sin? The original sin was, I'm going to take God out of the center of my being and I'm going to put him over here and I'm going to make myself the center. I'm going to be the Lord of my life. I'm going to be the most important. That was the first sin. The first sin was turning in on ourselves. And then that sin nature now is passed down to all of Adam's descendants. And what the Bible tells us is that this sin is deep. In theology, we talk about what we call total depravity. And what that means is not that you're as bad as you can be, but that sin has touched every part of your life. Your heart has a disease. Look at some of these verses. Jeremiah seventeen nine, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Ephesians 2. Look at how Paul describes us. He says, and you are dead... In the trespasses and sins in which in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now um, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Do you see how the Bible describes that we have this sickness deep down within us, and that sickness is. I'm the most important. I'm the center. Whatever makes me happy is okay, right? I'm the one who should decide my own fate, not God. I don't want Him to be the Lord. I want to be the Lord of my life. And what the Bible says though, what actually is true is we're not the Lord of our lives, right? We're, we're slaves to sin. We want to be the Lord, but we're actually slaves. And so what we see in this passage in Luke, is that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus, where he reigns as Messiah, as the king, brings the end of this ethnocentric uh, attitude? That's his message here. The kingdom of heaven is about restoring w- the world. Restoring what was broken in Edom, putting things back, right The Old Testament prophets talked about this and they called it justice. the God the gospel and the biblical story has so much to say about justice and racism and this is such a um, you know important theme for us to really take seriously and to really think about, especially with what's going on in our own country right now. Justice is a major theme in the Bible. Um, I'll give you a few sort of biblical examples. In Proverbs 31, uh, there's, you know, the, the, the woman, the, the proverb about the woman, the queen mother, and she's teaching her son, who would eventually be the king, right, how to be a good dude. And this is what she says in Proverbs 31, 8, 9. She says, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. So she's trying to train up her son, who's eventually going to be the king. And what does she tell him? How do you use your power in a godly way? Open your mouth for those who can't do it for themselves. right? Use your power to speak for those who can't speak for themselves. In essence, because the reason being because that's what the world is supposed to look like right? That's what real justice looks like. There's a bunch of other verses here. Look at Amos. I have, uh, what is this? Three verses here. Amos 5.24, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. Psalm 35.5, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Zephaniah 3, 5, everybody's favorite book of the Bible, right? Zephaniah, the Lord with uh, with her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. And so the with justice being this huge, huge theme in scripture, Jesus picks that up and he shows up and he says, you guys... This is, the reason this is all over the Old Testament prophets is because this is what the kingdom of the Messiah will look like. The world is broken. It is not supposed to be like this. God hates sin, right? A lot of preachers don't like to talk about sin. It makes people uncomfortable. Well, we need to talk about sin because of how much God hates it. He hates sin, including the sin of ethnocentrism. That sin, was so prevalent among the people of God, especially in the first century. We talked a lot about this when we discussed the book of Generous Justice together um, in our Zoom meetings on Wednesday nights, how justice is at the heart of God. Jesus announcing in this synagogue, the kingdom now has come, and your self-centered, racist, ethnocentric ideas, they have no place in the kingdom of the Messiah. And so for years, Jesus says, you've looked down on people who aren't like you. You have gone, and as you've done that, you've gone against the very heart of God. But this unity that we need to see, this unity is what the kingdom of God will look like. The kingdom of God is going to be full of widows of Zarephath, full of uh, generals from the enemy. Outsiders are going to be brought in. So, that's the theological truth that Jesus is conveying. But let's talk about our church. How, right, right? How does this play out in the church? Well, church history, first let's talk about church history. Have we gotten this right as a church over 2,000 years, or have we gotten this wrong? Uh, The answer to that question is yes. Uh, We've kind of done both. There's a lot of bad examples. Jonathan Edwards, who I think was an amazing pastor and a a godly person, had a huge blind spot in this area, and he was an owner. uh, He was a slave owner. Um, Martin Luther, who started the Reformation, right? we're a Protestant church, a lot of the stuff we believe is because of Martin Luther. In his later years, uh, there's discussion as to why. Was he losing his mind or what was going on? But he said some extremely anti-Semitic things. Um, Scripture was used Uh, to justify the African slave trade, but it was also used, this is less talked about, but it was also selectively used and abused to keep African slaves from learning about the image of God. Uh, And so scripture was used to defend this horrific practice and it was used to continue it and keep those people down. Billy Graham, he admits to not jumping on board with Martin Luther King early, and uh, Martin Luther King Jr. early enough. Right? Um, it took him a while to get there. And lastly, although I could go on with examples of how the churches failed at this, um, evangelical churches have had a theology that largely ignores issues of racism and ethnocentrism. We argue about things like. Uh, When God made the decree to save his people, was it before or after the fall? And people go in these, you know, internet chat rooms and they scream at each other in all caps about, you know, superlapsarianism or whatever, right? And we don't have a robust theology of justice in our world. Um, We ignore sins of racism or this ethnocentric idea. Or maybe we don't ignore them, but we make them a side issue. And we take side issues and we make them major issues. We 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 like to push this idea over there. And so that's one thing, another thing we've kind of done wrong. But it's not all bad. The church is also full of really good examples of how the kingdom of God has played out in really wonderful ways. Um, In the the book of Acts, the sequel to Luke, um, there's a church in Antioch is described like this. Now there were at the church in Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, uh, Who is called Niger, Lucius of uh, Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So basically, that group includes what does it look like? Uh, Greek speaking folks, um, Africans um Jewish folks from Israel Jewish folks from outside Israel so it was this really g- great uh diverse church the first church kind of outside of Jerusalem and then there's other stories right like there's Wil- William Wilberforce who fought to end um the African slave trade uh in England for years and years and years he fought to end this horrific practice and eventually he succeeded um one of my favorite stories is the story of Hudson Taylor who had uh was a missionary to China And uh, he adopted Chinese culture to reach the Chinese with the gospel. And so instead of doing what so many other missionaries at this time was doing, which was basically they were taking their own culture along with the gospel, and then they were sort of colonizing, right? So sure, you can be a Christian, but to do so, you also have to be English or Dutch or whatever, you know, French or Spanish, Catholic, whatever it was, right? You have to be this as well. You can't... um, they were basically colonizing and Hudson Taylor went in and said no and so he wore the long braid, he dressed like a Chinese person he, he everybody else um, all these other missionaries stuck to the um, the the coastland in China and he went into China at great risk to his life and he started the China Inland mission If you've never read about Hudson Taylor, it's really amazing. Here's a really really great example of what the kingdom of God looks like. Two more examples. We have Martin Luther King Jr. And his theology, uh, you know, his his practice of nonviolence and love overcoming enemies—that's directly taken from the the gospels and the, the idea of the kingdom of God. And then there's like uh, Desmond Tutu and the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions in South Africa. If you've never read about some of that stuff, um, you know, he's a, he's a believer, and all of his ideas, right, come from uh, the teachings of Jesus. And so. In one hand, we the church has really messed up a lot of this stuff. And then on the other hand, there are some examples of how we've gotten this right. So, suggestions for us, then, going forward. right? How can our little church be a part of God's amazing, diverse kingdom? Um, I took There's a good book I read recently called Woke Church um, uh, by Eric Mason. And I took a little bit of this from him, and I've got some of my own ideas here. But um, let me give you... Uh, well, if Jesus' kingdom is meant to destroy ethnocentrism, then here are three things that the we, members of the porch, have to take seriously. Here's three things. The first one is this, that we can never forget the idea and the theology of the Imago Dei, the image of God. This was the main teaching that the slave owners uh, in the South tried to keep away from their African slaves, that that they were made in the image of God. Because if these African slaves who... A lot of them became believers. If they really understood that they were made in the image of God, then the entire system would crumble and things would have to change, right? And so, um, this this theology is that important. I'll give you another example. I hate this. Um, you know, you ever see somebody try to make themselves feel like, oh yeah, I'm an enlightened guy or whatever, and they're talking about some girl who, you know, whatever, and they say, you shouldn't treat her like that. That's somebody's daughter. That's some guy's daughter. I hate that. Um, The reason is because her worth uh, is not connected to her relationship with some other man, right? Her worth uh, comes from the fact that she's made in the image of God. You know, I guess the man Christ Jesus, that's the one she's connected to, right? She is made in his image. And everybody that you meet uh, is made in the image of God, right? In our culture, we almost view homeless people, mentally ill, drug addicts, that sort of thing, as subhuman, uh, it, it's not all right. It, it it completely ignores the idea of the image of God, the Imago Dei. Let me give you one last place where this really comes into play. Think about the political vi- divide in our country right now. I don't know if we're more politically divided than ever. I've heard people say that, and I'm like, well, the Civil War happened. You know, There's other times where we've been pretty politically divided. Uh, but, I mean, it's bad. I watched people on Reddit celebrate when Herman Cain died a few weeks ago. Herman Cain was a conservative Republican who refused to wear a mask at one of Donald Trump's rallies and he got sick and he died from COVID. And everybody kind of said on Reddit it was like, ah, see, he gets what he deserves, stuff like that. I'm thinking that was a human being. Herman Cain was made in the image of God and he deserves more dignity and worth than that. But then on the other side, right, you remember the whole birther thing that Trump was a big part of. Um, what was really going on there? It was not just an attempt to disqualify Obama um, from being president by saying he wasn't born in the United States. What it was really was an attempt to make him an outsider. He's not even really an American, right, is what people were saying. It was to almost dehumanize him, right? He, look at him. He's one of the—he's an outsider. The idea of the image of God says there is no place for that sort of idea or behavior within the kingdom of God. We view every single person, even our enemies— Right. As precious because they were made in the image of God. So that's the first thing. Never forget the Imago Day. The second thing is I, we need to really practice listening to stories from people that aren't like us and learning stuff from them. So I'm talking race, economic status, different vocations, family makeups, political parties, even, and it makes me shudder to the core to even think about this, even Dodger fans. Right. We need to be hospitable. These sort of people, we need to sit and have actual conversations. And so, this is one of the reasons that we're going to read The Art of Neighboring together because I think if our church, you know, we could have really good preaching and that might, uh, you know, make a small dent in the kingdom of God. We could have really good music and that might make a small dent in the kingdom of God, whatever it is. Like, you know, we could have these things be amazing and it would make a dent, but nothing in our church is going to make a huge dent for the kingdom of God, I should say, in our world like being good neighbors and being the most hospitable, loving people out there. So, one question is, is your home open to people that are really different from you in all of these different areas? Think about it. When was the last time that somebody came over to your house for dinner that was nothing like you? That should be a very telling question. So, that's the first two. We have, don't forget the image of God, the Imago Dei. The second thing is, we need to listen to stories We need to be good listeners and be hospitable, hearing stories from people that aren't like us. And then here's the third and final thing that we should do. I think we need to be realistic. right? You're a sinner and you need a new heart. You're a sinner to the core. Your only hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the kingdom of God, as we see in the gospel... It breaks down barriers. Only Jesus heals wounds. Your sinful heart is always going to tell you your culture is the center, is the neutral one. Your culture is better than everybody else's culture. Your sinful heart will always tell you people like you uh, are better than people who aren't like you. Your sinful heart will always tell you other people who aren't like you should be feared and, and viewed with suspicion. And only the Holy Spirit of God given to his redeemed people can give you the new heart that you need to move yourself out of the center and to have God there instead, and when that happens, the world around us will change right that's the plan is that that the kingdom of God is going to be. Expanded to all these different kinds of people, and it'll be extremely diverse. We see this in kind of two real important biblical stories, right? You have the story of the Tower of Babel, where everybody was uh, sinful and proud, and um, God scattered them. And so what happened to the world was everybody went like this. And then you fast forward to Acts chapter two, and you see Pentecost and the falling of the Holy Spirit. And where in Babel everybody goes like this, in Pentecost this is what happens: everybody comes back together under the banner of King Jesus. And the culmination of that happens in Revelation, in Revelation chapter seven. Let me read this to you. Uh, actually, let me open my Bible. Revelation seven um, verse. What am I doing? Nine through thirteen. Revelation 7, 9-13. And after, th- <clears throat> and after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory, and wisdom and thanksgiving, and honor and power and might be to our God forever. Amen. Then, okay, that's, that's as far as I'll go. I'll just go to verse 12, right? A multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples, that's what the kingdom of God looks like. It's going to have people who were rich, people who were poor, people who liked the Giants and one or two Dodger fans. It's going to have people from all different tribes and nations and um, languages. This is what the kingdom of God is. He's gathering this group of people from every tribe and nation. And my prayer is that our church will jump on board with that idea now, that we will be part of the story of God, um, where people can, in a way, where people can look at us and say, look at how that very different group of people get along. The diverse church um, that loves justice is one of the most beautiful gifts that God has given to us, and it's one of the most beautiful gifts that he's given to the world. So let's not ignore it, right? Let's let our church here in San Francisco reflect the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, let's, Let's be the kind of people who force our neighbors to ask, what is it that brought this group of weirdos together, so that then they will find the answer? Is these are all people who have been redeemed by Jesus and now serve Him uh, as their Lord and as their King. Amen. Let's pray. And so, Lord, we confess that we are sinners; that we don't uh, always love our neighbors; that we we oftentimes think that we're superior to the people around us; that we stick to our own kind. Lord. Your grace, because of your death and resurrection, covers even that sin. And that's such a wonderful truth. So I just pray, Lord, that our church really would be a wonderful group of weirdos um, who are all together just because you have redeemed us. We pray that we would reflect in a small way what we will eventually see in the new heavens and earth. um, with, With your people from every tribe and nation and all different kinds of people coming together to serve you and to worship you. We pray that you would teach us how to love outsiders and how to show them uh, to show them how to become a part of the kingdom. So um, we thank you that this is your plan. Um, we thank you for for your grace and your mercy. And we pray this in your name. Amen.